and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. I hate cars. Trying to learn to drive was one of the most stressful experiences of my life. I failed the driving test and realised that I shouldn't ever be behind a wheel for other people's sake. I realise though that I'm pretty unusual. Most people enjoy the freedom they feel owning a car brings and some of them love it. But like me, Daniel Knowles believes cars are ruining the world. He's the author of a new book, Carmageddon, about the destruction and death they've wrought over the past century. Welcome to the bunker, Daniel. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Love to meet somebody who hates cars more than me, even it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, because you actually drive, don't you? Whereas I, I am not allowed to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do occasionally. I mean, I don't own a car and I don't drive very much, but I drive for work and I very occasionally drive on like a holiday or something. <laughs> So you're an economist correspondent and you live in Chicago in the Midwest. What's it like not to drive in Chicago? Well, Chicago's okay. I whine about the public transport a lot, but actually when my wife and I moved here, I had this kind of fear of, oh God, I'm going to be forced to buy a car and then it's going to look terribly embarrassing when this book comes out. Um, but we haven't been really. It's been kind of fine. Um, I get around mostly by bike and their public transport system, which has some problems at the moment, but it still works. And when I do need to use a car quite often is on is for work and getting out of the city and you go elsewhere in the Midwest and it's really pretty impossible to do anything without a car. In the book, you talk about some American cities that are very car-based. And one example is Houston, which apparently has 30 parking spaces for every resident. How can that possibly be? So, I mean, Houston is wild. And I, I should say that having kind of confidently written that number, I don't think anybody actually really knows. It's an estimate. Um, but it makes sense to me. If you kind of have visited Houston, you know, the whole city is is car parks. And it has um, this freeway, this, this motorway around the edge called the Katy Freeway, which is 26 lanes wide at its kind of widest point. And you really can't do anything without a car in Houston. If you would get in your car and drive to the parking lot of the business, you know, 100 metres away, because crossing the road would be so scary. So it's completely just built entirely around everybody getting everywhere by car all of the time. And there's actually a requirement, isn't there, when you build something new, a new restaurant or something in Houston, you have to have associated parking spaces. So that's a thing all over America, actually. And uh, I think Houston, they're, they're beginning to to get rid of some of those. Um, but yes, the, there are these very strict rules which say, you know, any new building, any anything has to have a certain number of parking spots, you know, uh, whether it's a, a funeral home or a bank or a casino or even a nightclub or a bar. It's like you have to have this many parking spots. It's always done per square feet of space or per number of customers or per bank teller. It's completely arbitrary, but these rules exist all over America. In cities like London and Paris, during the 19th century, we saw transport networks building up and developing and them expanding the transport systems, almost guiding their development. Why didn't that happen as cities grew in the US? Well, it actually did happen. Um, you know, if we talk of the same era, I mean, American cities before the Second World War um, or certainly before the First World War, were you know not that unlike European cities. They were kind of built around 
public transport. I've got an old map of Chicago, actually, which shows, you know, the all of the streetcar lines, um, tram lines that, that used to operate here, and you could get anywhere in the city by streetcar, and that's how the place developed. Um, I think America had the kind of enormous misfortune, in a way, of being the first country to really start manufacturing cars en masse, particularly sort of in the 1920s, 1930s, and you know, to be rich enough to to go, okay, we're, we're going to rebuild everything. So a lot of American cities were sort of systematically demolished and transformed to make it possible for people to drive in them. Uh, and that's why you end up with places, you know, like Kansas City or whatever now, which, which you can find had these historic downtowns um, and sometimes still have bits of them. And they've just demolished huge parts of it to make way for the cars. And I think Europe, frankly, was was mostly lucky that it didn't do as much destruction uh, because we, we weren't as rich. <laughs> but that did happen in Birmingham didn't it? Which is where you grew up. Tell us what happened to Birmingham. Well, so Birmingham was, uh, to its great misfortune, very rich in the 1950s. It was the centre of the car industry and it was, you know, uh, pretty much as rich as London in terms of incomes, which feels mad now. But uh, Birmingham had this um, incredibly kind of aggressive modernisation sort of plan. So they, you know, were very worried about slums. So they did this kind of slum clearance and they built a ring road around the city centre. They built a motorway that goes right through it. Obviously, it leads to Spaghetti Junction, which was Britain's first ever kind of multi-change, uh, multi-level like interchange, you know, American-style cloverleaf interchange. And uh, you know, they deliberately lowered the population of the city and tried to spread it out. And they built all these new kind of council estates, you know, with, with higher quality housing than the slums that people had been living in. But they were out in the countryside where it was very difficult to get around if you didn't have a car. So Birmingham, I think, you know, was not the only city in, in, in the UK to have done this, but it did it probably the most. It really tried to Americanize and it's still now, despite a lot of effort to turn it back the other way, can feel like the most American city in, in the UK, I often feel. You used to live in Nairobi, What's the traffic like there? Because it's a city that's expanded very, very fast and public transport has in no ways kept up, has it? Well, the thing about Nairobi, yeah, it has expanded extremely fast. And the way it's kind of being developed is really led for the sort of interests of maybe 10 or 20% of people there who have cars, which um, you know, in- included me when I lived there. So it's sort of new bypasses get built a lot. Um, they're very concerned about traffic all of the time. And the traffic is appalling. You know, it can take you hours to get anywhere. They built these bypasses. But what happens when they build the bypasses is that you then get kind of property development that's even further out of the city. So the traffic ends up kind of increasing again because people are having to drive this farther distance. And for the, you know, the majority of, of Kenyans, of Nairobians who can't afford a car, it just means that they have these absolutely appalling journeys to work on sort of minibus taxis, minibus transport or walking or cycling, miles and miles and miles to get to where the rich people who can drive are. There's a bit of a paradox in your book because you point out rightly that when people become middle class, one of the first things they do is want to buy a car because it gives them that freedom. But then when they're actually driving the car, they don't really enjoy driving it, <laughs> which, surpri- which surprised me. And you had some, some quite interesting stats about how little people actually enjoy commuting by car. 
does it actually make you happier to walk to work or get a bus to work or get a perhaps overstuffed train to work than it does to sit in a traffic jam? There are studies of this. And basically, if you look at it sort of minute by minute, you know, if the time taken to get to work is the same, driving is the least popular way of of, of travel. Um, the reason most people drive is that it's usually quicker and it's particularly quicker in cities that have been designed for driving where everything's kind of farther apart. But, you know, the problem from the perspective of the average driver isn't them. It's everybody else in them in their car and if you're the only person who has a car and if you then your car would be great and the reason why cars aren't liberating the reason why they turn out to be so frustrating it's the reality is they they pull out of their driveway and they get onto a busy road and they're crawling along at sort of seven or eight miles an hour you know in thick traffic and it sucks um and you never see that in the car adverts and i think that's that's the problem it's the you're contending with everybody else in their cars at the same time that's what makes driving miserable We've talked about how car owners can end up a bit disappointed or sometimes very disappointed with the experience of actually driving a car. Let's talk about the damage that cars actually do. Why do we care so little about air pollution, considering the thousands of people that it kills a year in London, for example? Why is it so hard for someone like the London Mayor, Sadiq Khan, to bring in measures to try to curb it? It's a really interesting question why we don't care about it, because it should matter. I think it's just one of those insidious, literally invisible things that only people begin to notice when you get something you know, like what's happening in, in New York at the moment with pollution from forest fires that are coming in there. But the, the pollution in London has got almost as bad as that at times, particularly maybe 10 years ago in diesel cars and diesel cars with cheating emissions were in huge numbers on the roads. It's really, really bad. And, and um, I think that we just have a sort of short-termist approach and people, A, they, they're conservative and they don't like change. And when you are trying to reduce air pollution, whether it's by yeah getting rid of older cars or, you know, if we go back long enough, it's getting rid of kind of coal-powered um, uh, power plants, that sort of thing. Um, it's, it's concentrated pain for a small number of people who have to give up their, yeah, their diesel car or whatever. Um, and the benefits are kind of diffuse. And the person whose child, you know, may develop asthma, they don't realize that at the time. Um, uh, so I think, I think that's why it's so difficult. You write about how driving lobbies have consistently tried to downplay the dangers of cars, including the dangers to pedestrians and the number of people who are killed by cars. How have they done that? Oh, I mean, consistently, and they're still doing it. If you go back 100 years, you know, and I I wrote about this in the US, um, but it happened in the UK too in a less dramatic way. Um, The motor industry kind of lobby realised that, you know, the number of people who have been killed in car crashes in the 1920s and 1930s was really, really bad for their industry. And there were these huge protests against uh, cars, against used cars and proposals to force uh, manufacturers to fit speed limiters on vehicles, that sort of thing. So they really pushed back and they got uh, past laws, which essentially 
creates the kind of modern paradigm of, of cars have priority in the road and you as a pedestrian should look out and you should only cross at crossroads. And in America, you know, you can, in lots of places, you can be arrested or, or at least ticketed for kind of crossing the road when it's not your time to do and the, they call it jaywalking and, and uh, you know, you can pay a hefty fine for, for crossing the street when you're not meant to. Um, and that's kind of the way the car industry tried to, to minimize pedestrian deaths by basically saying, oh, you know, it's, it's pedestrians' fault. They need to get out of the way. And there's still some of that now, I think, in, in the kind of um, the way like self-driving technology is being, you know, sold as a, as a means to minimize pedestrian deaths. I think the car industry is very in favor of minimizing pedestrian deaths insofar as they can do it without making driving in any way more stressful or disappointing or, or slow. Have you been watching the whole low traffic neighbourhoods debate in Britain with interest? Because it's been extremely uh, a source of, of such tension um, locally among places that have brought in LTNs. What's your impression of how that's working? Is it a strategy that that is going to work if we just stick with it, or is it fundamentally flawed? So I've had a very direct insight into that because my mum's actually a, a local councillor in Birmingham and uh, in a neighbourhood, Mosley, South Birmingham, where there have been a lot of arguments over low traffic neighbourhoods. And I think I think they're going to last where they put in. They definitely are, you know, contentious. I think the thing that's most interesting about LTNs is that people really love them when they're on their own streets because nobody wants people using their like quiet residential streets as a sort of um, rat run to get through. People hate that. They, they are scared of drivers on their own streets. But of course, they want to be able to use other people's streets as a as a rat run themselves to get to work a bit quicker or whatever. Um, but I, I think that sort of means that where they have been introduced, they will stay. Because if you try to get rid of them, the residents who, who live on those streets will fight and they're going to prove more popular. And after a while, people will think, how do we cope with kind of people being able to drive down these streets all of the time ever before? It would be like smoking bans. Yeah, because no one talks about, well, some people talk about abdology, the congestion charge, but they tend to do extremely badly in mayoral elections when they do. So do, do you think congestion charges as well, Once, you, if you can actually overcome the initial resistance, they're something that could could work more widely, maybe in other parts of Britain, maybe even in America? Yeah, completely. I think they, they would work great. The more you can bring them in, the better. I mean, I feel like uh, the leadership in Manchester, actually, I remember years ago, they've been long annoyed at the fact that they failed to get a congestion charge passed when they had a referendum, I believe, on it decades ago, still under the last Labour government. And, uh, you know, they raise revenue, they stop people driving into a city centre, which in turn speeds up the traffic and the buses, which makes it, you know, public transport into city centres better. Um, they're kind of an all-round win. They're better even for drivers, I think, because if you do have to drive in, okay, maybe you've got to pay, you know, 10 quid. But, you know, you save half an hour relative to, to what you might have been doing stick, sitting in traffic. And, you know, New York is about to have its congestion charge introduced. I think it will be early next year now. And it's been this huge fight over it. But it will be popular. It will definitely be popular. And I think, you know, more and more American cities are beginning to talk about it. Um, so we'll, we'll see uh, whether more of them actually introduce it because it's, it's one of those things that's very unpopular when it's proposed, but then it becomes more and more popular the sort of once they're introduced and nobody ever wants to get rid of them. That's the evidence of, of the places that have got them now. 
I do think you have to tie them to public transport, though. And of course, that's what Ken Livingstone did when he brought in the congestion charge. And he said there will be more, better buses. And there were. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, one thing that, that the book argument I tried to make is that it's it's not only that you get more money to fund better public transport, it's that literally reducing congestion and getting rid of cars improves public transport on its own. And in London, one of the big effects was that as traffic sped up, buses sped up. And as the buses sped up, people used them more. Um, and that kind of actually declined, went into reversal for a little while when Uber um, was kind of taking off and suddenly the congestion in London was getting worse again. And I think they've managed to reverse that by changing the rules on how congestion charging works for taxis and things. But, you know, if you can, if you can reduce the number of cars, public transport will get better just almost automatically. Obviously, if you then invest the money you've raised in improving the public transport even more, then you can get a really kind of virtuous spiral going. I see more and more EVs on the road in London where I live. Are EVs going to help or are they going to hinder? Oh, they're going to help specifically with one issue, which is CO2 emissions. And that's important. And we do need to change cars into electrified cars. But I, I'm quite sceptical of the idea that just changing every single car to an electric car um, will be enough. If we're talking kind of climate emissions, I think that first, you know, it will require a vast amount of energy to run these things. And I'm not convinced people have really done the maths on how much energy it requires to kind of charge 35 million electric cars on the on the streets in the UK, um, you know, more worldwide, how many cars we need first. Um, yeah, I think we have to electrify cars, but we just need to reduce the number we use. And, that, and, and, and if we drive less and we buy fewer cars, we'll be able to electrify them much quicker. It will be less pressure on our electricity grids. Um, and electric cars still have all the other problems of they call, they still can run you over. They still use up loads of space. They still cause air pollution, believe it or not, because the, a lot of air pollution is caused by rubbings from your tires, um, that come off and get into particles in the air. Uh, and in fact, they may even cause more in some ways because they're so much heavier. They kind of damage the roads more and their tires get worn down faster. So, I think electric cars is a thing that we probably need to do, but I'm, I kind of resent how it's the solution that everybody's obsessed with right now. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It is published on Kindle in the UK on 16th of June. And if you enjoyed today's bunker, you can back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. That's a couple of litres of petrol in car terms, I understand. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. The Bunker was presented by Ros Taylor. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison. Audio production by me, Robin Lieber. And the theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.